Today we're continuing our series titled Making Real What I Already Believe. And Jenna Dykstra will be looking at Matthew 7, 24 to 27, and how God transforms us through embodied participation. In this sermon, Jenna looks at how correct belief alone is not enough to produce deep transformation in our lives. We also need to participate with God and do what His teachings say. This is illustrated in the parable of the wise and foolish builders. While we know that following Jesus' teachings can be difficult or uncomfortable, it's perseverance and obedience, even in the midst of failure, that leads to growth in our capacity to love God and love others. So good morning. Uh, My name is Jenna. I am the office administrator here at the church. And today I have the privilege of continuing our sermon series. Um, And so if you haven't been here um, this summer, we are going through a sermon series called Making Real What I Already Believe. Um, And as we are getting close to the end of summer, um, I am almost concluding this sermon series. I am the second last sermon. Um, We have been going through eight truths about um, God and our faith, and today we are looking at the eighth truth. Um, So the truth today is um, that God transforms us through embodied participation. And so in other words, uh, because those use some fairly churchy and big words, we could say that um, we are not changed merely by correct thinking, but also through concrete action. Um, So before I begin, I want to tell a story. Um, So I work here part-time, but I have another part-time job. I work as an ESL instructor uh, to new immigrants. And I started this job back in 2019 um, and taught in person for about five months before March 2020 came. And like everyone else um, in March 2020, uh, because of COVID, we had to figure out how to move from in-person delivery to online delivery. Um, And one thing I realized in this transition is that my students not only needed help with English, that many of them um, lacked a lot of computer skills. Um, So it made it really interesting to try and teach online when my students themselves didn't really know how to use a computer. we kind of, we, we made it, we went through it, and as time went on, things kind of got easier, family helped out, and so for three years, I did this delivery, and about six months ago, I went fully in person for the first time, um, and one thing that I decided was important was that we spend some time developing those computer skills, because as you all know, our world is becoming increasingly digital, for better or for worse, and it's important that my students not only know how to speak English to be able to thrive in Canada, but for the most part, they need to know how to use a computer. Um, And so I spend one hour a week um, in a computer lab with my students going over some of the fundamentals. And one of the things that has struck me is how unintuitive computers are. Um, I am young enough that I don't remember not being able to use a computer. Um, I, in my preschool room, in my kindergarten room, there was a computer. I've known how to use it for ages, but my students, um, not so much. And one of the things that struck me that was, I didn't realize was so difficult was how to use a mouse. 
um, one of these here. And so my students, a lot of them come from uh, cultures that read right to left, and so their instinct is to click the right button instead of the left button, which causes a lot of issues. Sometimes they click on the scroll thing instead. They sometimes will try and like they push down everything and move, which doesn't work. So uh, part of my class, like part of the first about five weeks of my class was just really focusing on using a mouse and learning those skills. Um, but though I don't remember it, um, I'm not smarter than my students, I too also had to learn how to use a mouse. Um, when I was a kid, I remember having this computer program called Winnie the Pooh Kindergarten, um, which was just a collection of games that basically just taught me how to use a mouse. It was sorting, it was clicking, going through lists, all of those things. It was presented in a fun way for kids, but it taught me how to use a mouse. And I played this game a lot, if I remember correctly. Um, even my, when I went to my grandparents' house in Winnipeg, they even installed it there so that I could play it in Winnipeg. Um, and I just practiced this over and over, and that's how I gained the skills to use a mouse. And um, my students, as time has gone on, they have also improved in their mouse skills and their general computer skills. We practice once a week, and though we don't focus on the mouse as much anymore, we're still using it um, every time, and they're getting better and better. And it is through this practice that they have improved. And um, this is one of those activities that you really need to practice. You can't learn how to use a computer without using a computer. Um, and many skills are like this. If you think of a skill in your life that you have learned, uh, whether it be a musical instrument or a sport, um, most of these require physical participation to learn. You can read about it to a certain extent. I could have my students read um, in their own language how to use a mouse, but there's a certain level of just muscle memory that that's going to be required for them to use this effectively. And I don't think that our spiritual lives are that different. The same way that my students are learning to use a mouse by going through the physical motions of moving and clicking, we too grow as disciples of Jesus through participating with God and putting Jesus' words to work. But I think that is not always how we think about transforming work. That's not always how we think about learning um, in our spiritual lives. When we think about learning, we often think about coming and listening to someone like me, or to reading our Bible, or to listening to sermons online and podcasts and books. That's kind of our primary way that we think, or at least I think, of learning um, in my spiritual life. But I think that some... Uh, that believing correctly, just having it all in my head, is not enough to grow in the ways that God wants me to grow. Um, and I think that this is what scripture tells us. So as Janice mentioned before, and as we sang about, we're going to be talking about the parable of the wise and foolish builder. Um, but before we get into that, I want to kind of go over the context of this parable, because I think like most things in scripture, it's helpful to give a background um, to what, what this parable is speaking to. So if you bear with me for a few moments. Um, so we are going, um, the parable of the wise and foolish builder takes place at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is um, one of Jesus's kind of teachings that he did near the beginning of his ministry. And the Sermon on the Mount is the longest, most comprehensive teaching that we have written in scripture. Um, he 
lays out some of the most fundamental things about the gospel in this teaching. Um, we hear these teachings kind of repeated over throughout his ministry, but it is in this place that we have everything written, um, kind of in one concise teaching. Um, and so it is at the end of this teaching, as Jesus is finishing up his sermon, he gives a series of four different warnings. And he's using the techniques of comparing and contrasting, usually two groups of people, to kind of get his point across. So um, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, we see Jesus comparing two paths. One is a narrow path that leads to life, and one is a broad path that leads to death. There's a group of people that takes a narrow path, and a group of people that takes the broad path. And then in Matthew 7, uh, verses 15 to 20, we see Jesus comparing two different trees, a good tree that produces good fruit and a bad tree that produces bad fruit. And here he's talking about true versus false prophets and using these analogies of trees to kind of share with his people what to look for in a true versus false prophet. And then in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, we see Jesus comparing two kind of claims that people have about Jesus and how these differ. And so we see Jesus contrasting saying versus doing. And then the final warning, the end of Jesus' sermon, this is how he concludes our sermon. And if you ever study on how to preach a sermon, this is not how any of us would be um, taught how to end a sermon. He ends it with the following parable. And I'll read it for you now, and it's also up on the screen here. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall, because it's had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears the words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So again, in this parable, we see Jesus using the technique of comparing and contrasting two groups of people he used for the other three warnings. And so in this parable, we see a wise builder and a foolish builder. Um, the wise builder builds his house on a rock, and the foolish builder builds his house on the sand. And I don't think we have to be in construction to really know what makes one wise and what makes one foolish. Sand is not a good building material, certainly not a good foundation material. Um, when I was little, my family used to go to Kelowna um, to visit some relatives, and we would go to the beach, as um, we do in Kelowna. And my dad and I had this competition that he would have me try and build the strongest sandcastle that I could. And he would take a bucket of water, a single bucket of water, and see if my sandcastle could withstand the bucket. And we did this numerous times. And no matter how hard I compacted the sand, no matter how big I built my sand castle, it would always lose to the bucket. And so we know that sand is not a good foundation material. And so these two builders, they each build their house on their respective foundations, and they go through the same storm. Now the wise builder's house stands firm, while the foolish builder's house is destroyed. And so here Jesus is using these two builders to compare two groups of people. And the only difference between the group of people that is compared to the wise man and the group of people that is compared to the foolish man is which group acted upon the words of Jesus. 
So what Jesus is contrasting here is hearing versus doing. Now what I want to highlight is that the difference is not who hears and believes, but it's who hears and does. The group that is compared to the foolish builder may have believed every word of the sermon. They may have come back and listened to more of Jesus' teachings. They may have memorized his teachings and meditated on his teachings. But for whatever reason, they did not act upon his teachings. And we're not told why, as in most parables. We're not given a lot of details, but we can speculate. Maybe they were too busy. They got caught up in the work of daily life, and they never got around to it. Maybe it was too difficult. They couldn't implement it. Um, They just felt like they couldn't implement it. It was too hard. Or maybe they just didn't feel like it was that important. We don't know why they decided not to act upon the, the teachings of Jesus, but they didn't. But they did hear the teachings of Jesus. Um, and they, in another way, we could say they didn't embody the teachings. They didn't live them through their bodies. And they, therefore, they are likened to a foolish man whose house or whose life was destroyed by a storm. And now some parables that we read in the Bible can be a bit cryptic. It can be a bit hard to understand. Um, Some parables have some cultural nuances that are difficult for us as modern day readers to interpret. Um, But I don't think that this is one of those parables. I think that it is fairly clear in its message. Those who hear and put these words of mine into practice are like wise men. And those who hear these words of mine and do not put them into practice are like a foolish man. A house or a life that can withstand the storms of life is one that is built on the foundation of embodied participation. Intellectual commitment is not enough to weather the storms. Now James says this another way in his, um, in his letter to the Jewish Christians uh, spread throughout Israel. So he says this, and it will also be on the screen here. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So why is this the case? Why is hearing not enough? Why does James and Jesus say that hearing is not enough to weather the storms? Hearing is not enough um, to grow. And it is because I think that information isn't the same as transformation. And Jesus' goal was not just to inform us about the kingdom of God, but to transform us into citizens of its kingdom. Jesus' goal is not to inform us about the kingdom, but to transform us into citizens of its kingdom. And just like my students can't learn how to use a mouse by reading about it, and if you were to try and learn how to play piano or sing or play basketball or tennis, that you couldn't couldn't learn those things fully without participating in them, I don't think we will be transformed without practicing the teachings of Jesus. And now before I continue, I want to make one thing clear. I am not advocating for faith plus works. Our obedience to God does not justify us or make us righteous before him. In um, one of Paul's letters, he calls his righteousness rags in comparison to God's righteousness. 
but our obedience, our practicing Jesus's teachings, is a fruit of living faith. Also, what I want to make clear is I'm not saying that teaching is unimportant, that listening to sermons, reading books, reading your Bibles, I'm not saying any of that is unimportant. It is very important. But what I am saying is that is insufficient in and of itself to produce the deep transformation that is required to make us more like Jesus. It is through practicing the teachings of Jesus that we can learn to love God and love like God. And this is a world, a love our world so desperately needs. So if we look into the Sermon on the Mount and some of the teachings that Jesus gives and imagine what our world would look like if we really embodied these, if we really put them into practice. Imagine what it would look like if instead of taking revenge when we were wronged, instead of giving the silent treatment or gossiping about the other person or being passive aggressive with them, we were kind and generous in response to them. What would it look like with, um, whenever we were wronged if we owned up to what we did and sought to reconcile ourselves with the other person? What would it look like if we gave to those in need not only out of our abundance but also when we were in need, out of our scarcity? These are the very practical things that Jesus calls us to um, in the Sermon on the Mount. These are his words that he is referring to at the beginning of that parable. And these are relatively simple, um, and they're practical. But just because they're simple or practical doesn't make them easy. Um, If we took a look later in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 14, there is the famous story of Jesus walking on water. So, in this story, the disciples are in a boat, and it is stormy, maybe something looks something like this, and they see Jesus coming to them from the water. And so the disciples are on the boat, and Peter's on the boat, and he calls out to Jesus. And Jesus tells Peter to come. Come. Easy. Come when it looks like this outside of the boat, and in any other circumstance, leaving the boat would mean death. Not easy. But following Jesus and participating in what he calls us to do is living in the kingdom of God. And God's kingdom is not like our kingdom. And when we participate in it, it will feel hard and awkward. It will kind of feel like we are swimming against the stream. Um, TB and Sternke put it this way in their book, um, which is the book that we've loosely based the sermon series on. Um, Trusting Jesus in our bodies will often feel like dying, which makes sense. Jesus did say that while following him leads to true and abundant life, it looks like death when we start. Peter, stepping out of the boat, by all accounts looked like death, but it was leading him to true abundant life, to Jesus. And this image isn't more clear than it is when we look at the cross. Jesus bore this cross, walked to Golgotha, and was crucified. And this looked like death to everyone, to the disciples, to those who knew him best, it looked like death. But really, this was the path to true and abundant life. Now, I want to share a story about this in my own life. Um, So when I was 18, I did a YWAM DTS, which is a missional discipleship program. Um, And part of this program for the first three months is that we had to do an hour of intercession, so an hour of kind of focused prayer. Um, We had to do an hour three times a week, so... 
Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, we do an hour of intercession together. And I hated it. I hated it so much. I had never prayed for more than five minutes up into that point in my life. And so praying for an hour felt like an eternity. It felt boring. It felt useless. I didn't know what to say. We were just silent most of the time. Um, and then there were some of our leaders that talked about like how they love to pray for four hours at a time. And I just, I didn't believe it because I was like, what do you do for four hours? What do you say for four hours? Um, and I just, I didn't understand. But regardless of how, how I or some of my other um, comrades um, felt, um, we continued to do it. Um, and something happened about, I would say, a month and a half in, is that the hour felt like it went a little faster. Um, and I felt like we had more to say. And as time went on and as we practiced this discipline of praying, um, I began to see God's heart in a way that I hadn't before. I began to understand God's love for me and his love for others in a way that I hadn't anticipated. Um, and by kind of at the end of our three months, I longed for this practice. I looked forward to it, and I felt like I needed it, needed to know God's heart for me and the people around me. Um, and when we were, um, we were in Italy for a portion of this, and we were walking around a part of the city, and we walked through a rough part of the city. Um, and I felt compelled to spend some time praying for this part of the city. So I went above and beyond that hour of prayer that I was initially required to do. And me and a friend of mine woke up early um, so that we could be back for our regular schedule. And if you know me, waking up an hour earlier than I have to is a pretty big sacrifice. And we went around this area and we prayed. And during that time, I felt like God was transforming me. I felt like that I had a better understanding of his love than I had ever had before, and that I had a desire for other people to see that love. And it was, yeah, it was transformative for me. But the thing about embodied participation is that we're not going to do it perfectly, which is hard for a perfectionist like me to hear. Failure is part of the process of us learning to obey Jesus' commands. And this is an avenue that God can teach us how to love like him and love, um, and love him. And as I, back to my story, as I prayed the first few months, it was messy and imperfect and it wasn't eloquent and I didn't have the right heart in a sense um, I could see that, I could perceive that as failure. I was failing to pray, like some of my leaders who had cultivated that practice. But God is a God of grace and mercy. And as we approach him who loves us, even if it is through stumbling, he will meet us tenderly and help us get on our feet. Um, and we are not alone as we try and practice the teachings of Jesus. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount and many other places, Jesus uses the word you. Um, and this gets a little lost in translation because in English we have the word you um, for both singular and plural. Um, we use it both for an individual and a group. Um, but in um, Greek and Hebrew, the word you is split into two. And more often than not, when Jesus gives a command that says you, he is referring to a plural 
you, you as a community, you as a church, you as believers. And so um, when we hear these teachings and it says you, we know that this is not meant to be done alone. We are meant to tackle these teachings, to live out these teachings as a community. Um, We are to walk together, encouraging each other, and making room for failure, frustration, and anxiety. So, today, I invite you, let God do his transforming work in you. Step out of the boat, trust Jesus, and put into practice his words. Maybe the Holy Spirit has at one point prompted you to follow one of his teachings, and for whatever reason, you didn't do it. And so I invite you to consider what that was, and maybe see what ways could you implement that in your life. And if not, I invite you to look through the Sermon on the Mount, read Jesus' teachings, read what he says to do, and prayerfully consider what those teachings could look like, what one of those teachings could practically look like in your life. God wants to transform you. He wants you to grow in your capacity to love him and love others. Hear the words of Jesus and put them into practice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a good God and that the words, the teachings that you say are not just useless teachings to make our lives more difficult, but that they are, um, that these following in your ways leads to abundant life. God, I thank you that you are in our midst and that we do not have to do this alone, that we have your, each other and we have you as we seek to practice your words. Father, give us the courage and give us the strength um, to put into practice what you have said. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources to help further your study throughout the week, you can go to vbchurch.ca forward slash sermons.